This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 2-0 the count. Lee pitches. Renteria hits a high drive. Deep left center field. David Murphy going back. He's on the warning track. It is gone! Edgar Renteria has hit a three-run homer against Cliff Lee. And the Giants lead here in the World Series 3-0. Dave Fleming said that call felt almost embarrassing to him. He was under the weather for the all-important Game 5 of the 2010 World Series, but he wasn't going to miss it. He powered through, as did the Giants, and his famous voice crack has become beloved as it perfectly captured the emotion of the moment as the San Francisco Giants closed in on their first ring. The details behind that day and much more as we go inside Dave Fleming's Giant Moments now. now, now. This is Inside Giant Moments, presented by T-Mobile. Our franchise has countless memorable, iconic moments. Join Mark Willard as he connects with our former players who lived these moments to relive the emotions, the stories, and the joy. Dave Fleming joins the Inside Giant Moments podcast. And, of course, one of the voices that passes all of these moments along to all of us. So, Dave, this will be really fun, and I appreciate you doing it. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the only benefits that I'm seeing of what's going on right now uh, as you and I talk is a cool chance to reminisce and think back and, and appreciate what we've had here. So I'm glad to be with you, and maybe we'll have a few chuckles and share a few memories. Yeah, I'm sure we will. That's definitely the plan. And, and you know, looking into it, I mean, as someone who is also in broadcasting, of course, and you and I are about the same age, I, I really admire what you've been able to build in your career. I mean, what a dream scenario that you put together in coming to the Giants before you were even 30 years old. How did that all come together? Yeah, that you know, now it seems like so long ago. It's funny to think back. Uh, when I was doing minor league baseball, uh, in fact, this I'll be a little long-winded here, but my, my first job out of college in minor league baseball was with a team called the Visalia Oaks down in Visalia, California, Central Valley, just south of Fresno. Tiny little minor league team. Some great people ran that team, and it was a wonderful experience for me. I was one of three people who worked for the franchise full-time. So we ran the whole thing. We, we, uh, you know, I broadcast the games. That was like my eighth most important duty that I had with the team. I did all kinds of stuff from, you know, getting sales done in the off season to vacuuming the clubhouse when the visiting team left to painting the walls of the ballpark when the paint started to peel off. I mean, I did a little bit of everything, but anyway, <laughs> so that, that was my first job out of college and a tiny, you know, a guy who is a minority owner of that team, I think mostly just because his buddies own the team just for fun, was this guy named Pat Gallagher, who Giants fans who've been around a long time will recognize that name. Pat sure. is a very, very important person in the history of the Giants in San Francisco. 
and was the marketing guy behind a lot of the famous campaigns, Quada Candlestick and the Crazy Crab. And, uh, you know, Pat, Pat was there in the lean years and the great years trying to build the Giants fan base and did a wonderful job doing it. Anyway, he was a, he was a small owner of this minor league team that I worked for. And Pat flew in for the Visalia team, made the playoffs that year. And so a bunch of guys from the Bay Area decided to fly down and watch a playoff game. And they landed at the little Visalia airport. They literally, they took this prop plane and flew into the Visalia airport for this playoff game. And on the drive, which was probably 15 minutes from the airport to the ballpark, they put the game on the radio. And, you know, Pat clearly hadn't been listening to a lot of Visalia Oaks games over the summer, but uh, he listened to this game. And when he got to the ballpark, uh, you know, we're, we're doing the game and whatnot. And Pat comes up to the broadcast booth, which, by the way, wasn't a booth. It was a folding table, uh, you know, and a, like an awning. Yep. <laughs> we had no tarp. If it, it rained twice that year, I think, and the game got rained out because we had no tarp. Like, right. the, 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 you know, this is the smallest of small-time minor league deals. And Pat came up and said, hey, we listened on the way from the airport. I thought you sounded really good. Here's my card. I'm Pat Gallagher. I work for the Giants. Stay in touch. Uh, be fun to follow your career. So I thought, well, that's cool. Really nice of him. He didn't have to do that. Fast forward two years, and the Giants are hiring to replace Lon Simmons. Lon, at that time, the great Hall of Fame voice of the Giants for so many years, was basically doing weekend games. John would go do Sunday night baseball, and Lon would uh, – fill in for John. So he would do most weekends when John was gone and added up to maybe like 40 games over the course of the year. It was like a great semi-retirement job for Lon, kept him in the mix of it all, kept him doing some games, but didn't, wasn't a huge time commitment. Lon had decided at that point he wanted to move to Maui full-time. He was retiring for good. He was going to Hawaii. That was it. So the Giants needed 40 games of coverage and so they sent out word that they were going to hire some younger or, you know, less experienced broadcasters. And they were thinking of hiring several of them at the same time and just kind of rotating through. And I sent my CD in and I sent it to the Giants, the KNBR and Bob Agnew and also to Pat Gallagher. And I just told Pat, hey, I sent in a CD uh, to the Giants, just so you know, we'd stayed in touch, talked a couple times since that day, two years prior or three years prior. And Pat called over to KNBR and probably talked to Larry Bear as well and said, look, I'm not telling you what to do. Just put this guy's CD in the pile of ones that you're actually going to listen to. Make sure you listen <laughs> to this guy. And coming because you've been there as a young yep. guy when yep. you were coming up. You know, the, the way it used to work, especially when it was tapes and cassettes and, and CDs, these program directors, you'd walk in their office and there'd be like a mountain of tapes off in a corner, all mislabeled and half stepped on. And uh, <laughs> that's how we, we were trying to get jobs. It's like the worst possible process to hire people. And but Pat did me a huge favor. He said, you just make sure you listen to this guy. And as it turned out, Pat had them listen and Bob Agnew I think was the first guy to call me and say we would like to use you for some major league games with the Giants this year and that's how I got my my great break with the Giants and I probably ended up doing 10 games that first year that was 2003 
the year after the World Series, the year of J.T. Snow at home played against the Marlins in the playoffs. The Giants had this terrific year uh, and had a great team. And interest in the team was really high, even after the disappointment of 2002, 2003. The Giants got off to the best start they'd ever had in the history of their franchise. They were like 18-3 and or something like that. So it was a great year to be a part of the broadcast, and uh, and that's how I got my start. And, and it turned out the next year the Giants ended up picking me of those guys who had filled in to, to come on full-time. And there were some other really talented uh, broadcasters who did games that year, but for whatever reason I clicked with Dwayne, with Mike, with John, and, and the Giants hired me from there. I mean that is a that is a quick trip to the bigs, man. It was a quick trip. It was it was a quick trip, and I got really lucky. You know, I think that's how this works in this business. Sometimes is you get you get one break, and things start to happen much faster. It's because you know it's it's funny. We're in a world a business where the the higher you go, the easier it is to keep climbing. Yep. Uh, there are some, there, you know, there's some, in fact, I would say probably most jobs, industries, it's easy, relatively speaking, to take those first few steps. It's hard to become the CEO of Disney. Like you can, you can work your way up through the corporate ladder and into the hierarchy, but it's hard to become the CEO. And in our business, I think it's almost the opposite. Now, maybe it's hard to become Jim Nance or Bob Costas, but it's, it's, it's much easier once you start to get jobs to get better jobs. It just gives you credibility and people hear you on a bigger platform and things just open up so much. And so I do feel like I got the ball rolling somehow quickly when I was young. And that got me to where I am much quicker than for most uh, play-by-play guys. And I'm very thankful for that, that, you know, that 2003 year Giants fans have been around for a while might remember this. My first weekend doing Giants games was in April of 2003 and uh, the Giants were playing the Phillies in Philadelphia part of the way the Giants did this was I was on the east coast at that point I was doing the AAA games for the Red Sox in Pawtucket so when the Giants would come east they would pick some games for me so I was closer that's kind of how we divided the whole thing up so my first weekend of doing games was late April of 2003 the Giants, as I said, were off to the greatest start in their franchise's history, flying high, everything going well. And I show up, and the first night I broadcast was a Saturday night, and the Giants lose. And the second day, the second day that I'm there, the Giants get no hit. Kevin Millwood pitched a no-hitter against the Giants in the second game that I ever broadcast in the big leagues. And I really, you know, it was a thrill to be there. I mean, it was like, seriously, they're – no hitters have become a little more frequent or at least were for about a decade, kind of starting right then there was a, this period of time where we had more no hitters and perfect games going through Matt Cain's perfect game. It's kind of stopped now as pitchers have a hard time getting through nine innings, but there was a, there was a golden age of no hitters that almost started like that day. But up until then, no hitters were like really, really rare. There had been guys who had worked their whole careers you know, 25 years as a major league broadcaster and never broadcast a no-hitter. This was my second game. And the only problem was, was that it was against the team that I was broadcasting for that had been almost unbeatable up till then. And I really, I walked out of the booth that day going, well, I'll never forget that. And I may never get to do that again. I mean, why would they want me back? I can't get a hit when I'm around. 
Jinx. It was a terrific game, but but you know the funny thing is, I learned a lesson off of that because the what got written in the papers, you know, that was almost God. It seems scary to say that was almost like pre-internet, uh, not quite, but like the papers still were where people expressed opinions, and that's what sort of the the, the voice of authority came and. A couple different mentions in the in the Bay Area papers after that no hitter had a little nugget about me. It kind of became like a thing. Hey, you know, young guy shows up and watches a no hitter. Uh, it, right. it was a little bit of a story, but <laughs> but both or however many mentions there were made note of the fact that like in the big pressure moments of the no hitter. I mean, I didn't call the ninth inning. Joe Angel did. He'd been with the Giants and been around mid leagues for a long time, but. There were some big plays and big moments that I called, and they made note of the fact that, hey, this young guy didn't flinch. And so even though even though my feeling was sort of like dread when I walked out of there, it, it turned out to be a really good thing for me because I think it was like this immediate uh, verification that, okay, if we hired this guy and there's a pressure moment, a big moment, you know, Barry Bonds was building. He'd already set the single-season home run record. There was a lot of anticipation in 2003 about the career home run record uh, could this guy handle big moments and i think the answer after that day at least you know the giants felt like was yes uh man i mean uh, the the whole thing kind of blends together with the the recurring theme of how quickly this is all going and and there was some synchronicity to it as well uh because you grew up in virginia and i imagine when you're listening to baseball games as a kid that that you know john miller is there doing the orioles at the time and uh and so to whatever level he might have been uh your guy uh as you're listening to baseball what do you remember about listening to him when you were younger oh he was he was my guy for sure um and you know the thing that i most remember vividly because i wasn't one of those kids you know that, the Orioles were our team, but I grew up in the D.C. area, so there was it was a strange disconnect of and a strange relationship with the Orioles for all of us who grew up where I did because we we wanted to love big league baseball. I loved the big leagues. I loved watching baseball in the summertime with my dad and brother, but there was like a love hate because we always felt like, and I think it was true, and for obvious natural reasons, the Orioles very much resisted the idea of Washington having a team again. And we all felt like, Hey, DC is, is, you know, it's become this world-class city and the columnists would write these columns over and over again about how Washington's ready for a baseball team. And it was the Orioles who prevented it from happening. So even though I've listened to John a lot, it wasn't like I was one of those kids in my room at night with the transistor radio on every <laughs> night, because because there was this funny relationship with the Orioles. Like, I, that's my team. That's our team. But they're the reason why we can't just hop on the subway and go to a game here. So it was like a, it was a really funny way to be a baseball fan. But what I do remember vividly is several times a year, we would go up to Baltimore. And, you know, when I was really little, it was Memorial Stadium. As I got into high school, Camden Yards opened up. But I remember those days of we would haul up to Memorial Stadium and we'd pile a few of my friends in and my dad would take us up to a couple games a year and we had one of those big station wagons that had a rear seat facing backwards 
and like it was fun to sit in the rear backwards seat and you could stare at the driver in the car behind you and make funny faces and you know you're eight years old you think that's really hilarious and uh, but we would go to the games, and I can remember, I can put myself in that as an eight-year-old, even sitting here today talking to you, of hearing John after the game do the highlights and the recap of the game, driving home. Uh, and that really was pre, you know, that's pre, not just pre-internet, that's practically pre-sports center and uh, highlight shows. I mean, that's yeah. where any any information, out-of-town scores you got, notes from around other teams and other games came from a live broadcast like that. And I can really vividly remember listening to John and, you know, you can listen to him do highlights to this day. And to me, it sounds similar to what I heard when I was a kid driving home from Memorial stadium. Well, and that's quite a thing. I mean, the idea of stepping into your childhood background and, and, you know, the thoughts and dreams that, that you may have had when you're young, that's, that's a big thing for people to kind of wrap their head around. And you've really lived that at a high level. So when, when you then suddenly step into being a colleague with John and there's a very established crew can kipe on the, on the team as well, was there a process there? How, how long did it take for you to feel like you were kind of up to that? Well, I would say this. I, I didn't feel up to it at first, and I really felt intimidated. Nah, intimidated is probably the wrong word because I was happy to do the job, and I thought I am capable. I, I told myself, you're, you're capable of calling a baseball game. You can do this. This isn't above you. There are, you know, it's not like somebody else would come in and do. But, but what, I, what I was sort of intimidated by was the idea that, okay, there are four of us doing these games, and four of us that our fans are hearing every day. And one of them doesn't sound like the others to our fans. You know, one of them isn't recognizable. One of them isn't already known. One of them isn't already famous. One of them isn't already beloved. And I really thought, gosh, I am set up to fail here. This is, this is like, there's not even like one other guy who's kind of on my level. There's three guys who are at this super high level and then a total newcomer who, you know, at that time maybe I was 26. 27 something like that and i looked maybe 20 and i right. thought i thought, <laughs> right. I, thought I, I i'm really set up here to look bad like i'm gonna i'm gonna stand out and not in a good way and it, you know what it was totally the opposite w- what it turned into and this is another really good lesson growing up in my professional life of you know i did not have to force anything those first few years and that you so you're asking me how that worked what what it really allowed me to do was just focus on the absolute basics do the job don't make anybody mad say the score a lot sound like you're having fun call the game that's it i mean i those first few years i don't think i showed my personality very much i didn't joke around that much and let them do the joking around on me there's a lot of that in that direction, but I didn't do it much in the other direction. And it was absolutely perfect. It took all of the, I thought going in all the pressures on me, I have to sound like those guys. It was the exact opposite. The pressure was taken off of me because those guys were so good that I was just a part kind of along for the ride. And as long as I did my job, nobody was going to be mad at me and I fit in and that was it. I didn't have to, try too hard i hear young announcers and i'm sure this happens in other other ways other walks of life 
you know, just trying so hard right away to impress. Like you're, I wasn't going to be my full personality on air right away. And I didn't have to be, and that turned out to be a great blessing in disguise. And I think over the 18 years since, or however many years it's been, then, you know, I think my personality has come out a lot more. I'm a bigger part of everything. I'm more of a driver of what we're doing as opposed to just kind of a passenger along for the ride. And, but, but that all was able to happen slowly for me, which was a great thing, and I give John and Dwayne and Mike all the credit for that. Well, and what were they telling you off the air as well? Like, what, what were those conversations like from, from their perspective? Were they giving you any tips? What were they saying? You know, the first tip that they ever gave me, the first day, I, I had not met Dwayne and Mike ever. I had met John one time. Uh, John, when I was a college student and decided I wanted to do these games, John, uh, it's a convoluted story, but anyway, I got hooked up on the phone with John. John didn't know me. I didn't know John, but he picked up the phone. I was in somebody else's office. It was like, here, call this guy, call it. And then all of a sudden I was on the phone with John Miller. Like, huh? Okay. And he, he, he got the giants to give me a little booth at Candlestick Park. And I came up my senior year at Stanford, drove up to Candlestick for a day game and broadcast a game. And uh, and he came in and listened to some of it. And he was really good about giving me some feedback and stay in touch. Of course, he didn't remember that years later. When he, right. Huh? No? What? <laughs> it was like a defining moment of my life. John's like, yeah, whatever. Sure. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> but so I met John one time on that day. I'd never met Dwayne and Mike. The first day that I showed up for that series I was telling you about in Philadelphia, the first piece of advice, I've shared this with so many young broadcasters, and I almost do what they did to me to emphasize the point, was I got in the booth and, you know, the the press box has all these game notes and they're printed out on these reams of paper and stapled together and you got stat packets and game notes. By the time you walk into the booth, you've got a, you know, probably like 70 pages of paper stacked up that you're going to organize and and i think it was Dwayne, but you know john certainly supported the point maybe maybe i'm getting it wrong in my mind but uh Dwayne basically picked up the stack of papers that i had brought into the booth and demonstrably threw them in the trash can (laughs) like see all this stuff that you just picked up here's where it goes and and his his advice was don't get caught looking at that stuff you're not going to fool Giants fans. They've been watching this team every day. They know the team better than you do. They know they know the team better than you do, and that's fine. You don't have to. You don't have to be the expert right away. You don't have to wow them with like nuggets and notes and whatnot. Just, just watch what you're seeing on the field. Describe that to them vividly, and they'll be happy with you. Forget about all that other stuff. And it's great. It's just terrific advice for yep. any any young play-by-play guy who wants to be Vin Scully right away and tell anecdotes that you weave inning to inning and there's a payoff. No, that, you know, Vin, Vin can do that and could do that and was great at it. You in on day one cannot do that. And so that's what I did. And I really basically, I mean, I don't want to say I throw my stuff in the garbage can every day. That's not true. Right. But I try to remi- I try to remind myself of that all the time. Of why do people tune in to listen or watch a game? You know, maybe you're going to give them a laugh, 
maybe you're going to tell them something about a player that they didn't know and make a story come to life and make a guy's personal story, you know, make a, a viewer or a listener more invested in their success or lack of or struggles. You know, that, that's part of our job, and I take that part of our job seriously. But people put a game on because they want to know the score. How's the game going? How's my team doing? Or how's that team? What's, what's, what's been the most important thing to happen in the game? Have there been any really great plays? And that's it. That's, you know, that's why people watch these games. And so, sometimes we just make it so complicated with all the other stuff that for us in our own heads sounds really interesting and great. And for the average viewer or listener, is not all that interesting, isn't all that great, and distracts from the main reason why they're putting you on in the first place. And it was just a, it was the best first lesson I could have learned from those guys. And I think about it really almost every game that I do, I think about taking that pile of paper and throwing it in the garbage can. And in my mind, I, you know, again, I don't do that with everything, but I do that with a lot of stuff I do. Uh, I think uh, I think you're spot on. It's uh, it's good advice, good thing to keep in mind. You you've made uh, a little bit of a reference to this. You joined the team at such an interesting time because um, while it was a good team, they they started out for a while, you know, not necessarily making the playoffs once you were there full time. Uh, but you are dropped right into the middle of the Bonds home run drama. What was that like for you? Well, that was it was a little bit intimidating because it was. Uh, you know, it was a circus, not not in the way that the Giants handled it, but it was just, you know, Bonds was so polarizing, and Falco was going on at that time simultaneous. So the national news was there. You know, the whole, I love Pedro Gomez, but he's there every day and driving very crazy about that. You know, <laughs> and and there, there was this dynamic of tension and everybody – you know, people rooting against him at other ballparks, our fans rooting so hard for him. And then he started to get hurt and he was missing time. And, uh, you know, the whole thing took on such a, a life of its own. Uh, it was strange to have that. And, it, you know, it just didn't feel the thing that it felt to me was like, OK, we're witnessing history here. But uh, the rest of the team was just pushed aside so dramatically it didn't feel right to me in that way. I was like, man, so much of our emotional energy is going towards this one thing. And you got all this other stuff going on. And I understood it, um, but it was fine. It was really exciting to be a part of some big uh, home run calls at such a young age. You know, like one of my first, uh, gosh, it wasn't, it was very, very early in my first full year. He tied and passed Willie Mays Bonds did his own godfather who was there at the ballpark to to be there with him when he did it um, I mean what an amazing blending of history and sort of emotionally loaded moment that was you know that was like a few weeks I think if I'm get, getting the timeline in my head right into my my full-time job uh, so you're you're seeing things that just you know you don't get to see very often and I love that part of it uh, and, you know, I ended up, I, I called the home run that tied Hank Aaron, and uh, I thought I did a good job on, like, a really big, big home run call that was really important, and that, you know, that makes you feel good when you get a super historic moment like that. Uh, I had the famous thing, I don't know, you were, I, I don't know if you were paying attention back then, but the the one where he, oh, yes. he passed the base. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, Dave, let, Dave let's let, let's jump into that. What, will you t- take us through that experience? And for people who don't know what Dave is referring to, the the mic cutting out in the middle of home run number seven fifteen. This is in 06. Uh, there are yeah. a lot of people, a lot of different angles who have told this story. But w- w- your experience, what what okay, happened, so and what was that like? The real story is this. I mean, and, and this it's not this isn't hiding anything from anybody or or disputing what anybody else has said. But uh, so it's like a Sunday afternoon, I think. It was a weekend afternoon game, day game, beautiful game, uh, Giants and Rockies, I think. And Bonds is at seven fourteen, and uh, I think it was Byung Young Kim. The, the guy who had you know been such a big uh, character in the World Series in 2001 for the Diamondbacks at that point had bounced around a little bit. And he serves up this home run to Bonds, and I was doing the game with Greg Papa, uh, actually, on radio. And it was my inning for the play-by-play, and Bonds comes up, and every at-bat at that point was, was you know, everybody standing up, all the cameras are out. Uh, every at-bat was just so loaded. Is this going to be the one where he ties it, where he – passes him so he hits this ball to center field and i mean he just absolutely it was a classic bonds home run it's one of those where if you're if you're doing a, a a big home run call it's the one that you dream of because there's no doubt about it the ones the ones that are hard are like uh, is it going out or not do you start to get excited and get everybody's hopes up and then it doesn't go out or uh those are a little harder this one was like a no doubt 450 foot just monster home run so right away, I go into the big home run call, and in my headphones, so I'm just picture me in the booth with my microphone and my headphones, and I do the home run call all the way through. It sounds perfectly great in my ears. It never gets interrupted. The whole My microphone doesn't go out in my ears. Uh, I let the crowd take over, and the foghorn sounding and people are going nuts. And I punctuate the call with, you know, he passes the babe or whatever I said. And I like, in my mind, it was like, great. Wow. That was, that's a dream. You, you just dreamed for a home run call like that, where, you know, it's gone and it's a big moment. And so I was, you know, for, for 10 seconds, I was just thrilled. I thought, well, that's as good as it could be in that kind of scenario. And it sounded totally good in my ears. And from the back, Lee Hammer was, was, you know, everybody who's a Giants fan has heard the name many, many times. He was producing the game that day in the booth, and he starts. <laughs> I don't want to. I would. I would have done the same thing, but he just he starts freaking out in the back of the booth, like he's waving his arms, like he's doing jumping jacks. He's throwing stuff up in the air, clapping his hands, trying to get our attention up front. And finally, I kind of on my peripheral vision, I see him. I look back and he's mouthing the words like nobody heard it or the call went out or something like that. And we, you know, I, I blew him off. I thought, well, Lee's crazy. Cause right. I heard, I heard it totally fine. Nothing sounded different to me at all. Nothing. Finley runs the payoff pitch, a swing and a drive. Deep set. The pitch. Bonds hits one high, hits it deep to center, out of here, 7.15. The wait is over, and they are on their feet here at AT AT&T Park. Bonds passes 
been on the all-time home run list. And, you know, finally, I take my headsets off and pop up. We're trying to, like, enjoy the moment, too. Bonds is circling the bases. Here comes his kid, and everybody's congratulating him at home plate and uh, flashing it up on the big video board, uh, you know, 715 and whatnot. We're trying to take this in also. And Greg and I take off our headsets, and Lee finally speaks up and says, you know, like, nobody heard it. It didn't, nobody heard the call. They don't know what happened. And so I tried to, like, then come in and recap. Well, in case you missed that, Vaughn's, you know, whatever, damage control, nobody could hear it. My microphone, even though I could hear it perfectly, was gone. And so finally Greg turns his up and comes on and explains the situation. And my heart just sunk. Like, what? I, I just didn't, oh. couldn't comprehend. I couldn't comprehend what possibly, you know, was it my fault? Did I do something? Did I kick a court? But, but no, because it's not like the thing cut out in the middle of the call and I couldn't hear it. It sounded totally fine for me. You know, you, months later, they did a deep dive and found some part they thought had, had failed. And so that was the explanation they had for it. But I remember after the game, uh, even in the middle of the game, texting or going downstairs to tell Larry. I, f- I felt like Larry needed to know. Like this was this big moment. So I text Larry Bear and I say, look, I, I don't know how to sum this up in a text message, but the call I just made of the home run didn't go out over the air. So Larry comes up to try to figure out what to do, and people are saying, should we recreate it? Should, do you remember what you said? Should we do a call and I was like, I don't know. That doesn't sound like the right idea to me. And right. it becomes, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like this is in the middle of the game. The press box starts buzzing about what happened on the Giants radio broadcast. And uh, I mean, it, it just, and I, so after the game was over finally, and Dwayne and Mike come over and they're like, what? I can't believe what happened. And, um, and I try to explain, nobody knew we couldn't explain it. And I go downstairs into the tunnel, and all the writers are there to ask me questions about it because it was a story. It was part of it was a sidebar. Right. Like the Bond right. home run was the biggest part of the story, but it was a sidebar. And uh, you know, I I said something in my answer to them about the curse of the Bambino. Like, you know, gosh, you know, the babe is still kicking because how could you possibly explain? I've done hundreds and hundreds of giant games. Never, ever had anything like this happen at the one moment, the exact moment that he was passing Babe Ruth is the one moment in my career here that the whole thing kicks out. You know, like there's got to be something to that. And people picked up on that, and my phone started ringing. NPR was calling. Good Morning America wanted to interview me about how did it feel to have a home run call that was destined for the Hall of Fame, erased for all time, and I I wasn't totally ready for all that stuff, right. but but I think but I think what ended up happening was instead of somehow it it focusing on me, like somehow I screwed it up because I didn't. I mean, I did the call and it was I, it, yeah. it was a good it was a good home run call. I had a sense of humor about it enough to where people I don't know if they felt sorry for me, but they they they, they took it in stride along with me, and so. It became, in a weird way, as disappointed as I was, as much as it put the spotlight on me, which I didn't want in a big moment like that, 
it became a moment where I think people felt a connection to me and I laughed about it and I had my little canned line about the curse of the Bambino and whatnot. And so, you know, in a way, I think I came out of it just fine, no worse for the wear. And who knows, maybe in some way it let people get to know me a little bit better. But man, was I disappointed in the moment because it was just it was just a majestic historic this is babe ruth you know this is this is a guy that i'm broadcasting a connection to babe ruth and nobody can hear it to this day the call was lost forever and ever not recorded anywhere no it's never been heard other than in my ears and greg papa's ears and you can ask greg it was a pretty good call right (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's unbelievable. You know, uh, Kruk and Kipe did an episode, and Kruk is, is – he does not believe that this was an accident. Like, he, he's like – I mean, because of what you just said, it's like all of these years, and I bet you could say even since then, this has never happened again, has it? Never happened again. It's the only yeah. moment in my <laughs> career. I've done thousands and thousands of games. It's the only moment where that's happened. It doesn't so, – it does seem like that can't be a coincidence. Right, right. So, I mean, and I don't, I mean, I'm not pointing the finger anywhere. I have no clue. But, I mean, in your heart, do you believe that that, I mean, it was just some sort of wire that went out at that time? No. I mean, I do feel like somewhere along the chain, somebody did something to yeah. make that happen. I do. I mean, but I, mean, I and, and I'm not even, I'm not even saying that maliciously, like, oh, we need a deeper investigation and find out. I just think it's too big <laughs> It's too big of a coincidence to think that that is the only moment that that has ever happened. And literally in the middle of the, you know, bond swings, long drive, deep center field. I think it was Steve Finley. Finley goes back and, you know, that right then it drops out. Like right as I was about to say, <laughs> it's gone. He's passed the babe. It, dro- that just, it just can't be a coincidence, can it? Uh, I don't think so either. But you know what? Maybe that's going to be our next podcast. Like we could, yeah. we, you know, here we, 15 years later, let's do a deep dive investigation. And uh, we know all the people to interview. So I'm, I'm willing to take that on, Dave. You know, we could do like a, you know, a, ser- a serial podcast like series and have some dramatic yes. music find and, uh, on, the, on the next episode. Lee Hammer, right. he's blame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lee Lee will be one of the last episodes. There's no question yeah. about that. <laughs> oh man, did did 07 make up for it at all when you got as and you mentioned this already when you got to do 755, what did that feel like? Hensley retired the Giants in order in the first inning on just 10 pitches. Overshift on the infield for San Diego, outfield very deep. 2-1 pitch, Bond swings and he drives one to left. Going back on this ball is Hairston. It's gone. Off the facing of the second level. And Barry Bonds has equaled baseball's all-time home run record. Number 755 for Bonds. He does it in San Diego. And Bonds' teammates, led by the manager Bruce Bochy, are walking out to home plate as Bonds crosses home, gives a huge hug to his son Nikolai, Bonds with 755 career home runs. And now high fives from his teammates, hugs from the Giants coaches, everybody out to congratulate Barry Bonds. And the cameras go off here at Petco and almost everybody's standing and many are applauding Bonds as he has equaled the great Henry Aaron.
Yeah, it did feel good. And I, it felt good to have a moment that wasn't interrupted, that was a clean, good home run call that, you know, Giants fans thought I did it justice. And although that was, you know, that's that's the opposite of a Bonds home run in a way. Like the 755, if you go back and watch it, was you know, just barely got over the wall. And I think it was to the opposite field. It was like, a, you know, he hit it to left center field. It was just, just not like most of the Bonds home runs that we've seen. But still, it felt good. And uh, everybody, everybody in that moment thought back to the – you know, I, I remember Dwayne and Mike and John all, like, giving me a big hug, like, well, you got one. <laughs> Took yeah. a couple extra years, but you got one. Uh, yeah, it felt good. Okay, quick pause to thank our sponsor, T-Mobile. It's never been more important to stay connected, and T-Mobile has taken steps to support customers along with frontline workers nationwide during these uncertain times. They've been amazing. T-Mobile responded to customer needs by increasing network capacity, lifting smartphone data caps, and increasing data allowances for schools and students in the Empower Ed program. They've also committed to donate $2.5 million to over 100 local schools and Boys and Girls Club of America, which provides childcare for our nation's first responders and healthcare workers, meals for families in need, and more. T-Mobile is committed to supporting customers, communities, and thanking frontline workers across the nation. Visit T-Mobile.com for more information. And now back to Inside Giant Moments. Yeah, and that's also the year... Uh, Bruce Bochy arrives in San Francisco, which, of course, changes everything going forward. How, how in your eyes, did that sort of adjust to what was going on with the team? Well, it turned out he was just the perfect guy. He was. And, you know, one thing that, you know, we could do another podcast about Boch and his impact, and we could do however long we needed about him and him alone. But he always had this reputation in San Diego as a guy and maybe earned in some ways who didn't want to play the young guys, wanted to stick with the veterans, believed in experience. And when you look back on it, you know, there was probably a lot of truth to it. Although when you look back on it, you also realize that a lot of those young guys that Padres fans or people around baseball were saying, man, you're not giving this guy a chance. Turned out they weren't nearly as good as everybody at the time thought they were. So I think in a way, Bochi ended up being justified. And, and and then you look on his Giants tenure, because I think you know, everybody acknowledged that Bruce Bochy is one of the better managers in the game. He took the Padres, a franchise that had not had any sort of success in their history, and they'd been around for several decades by the time he took over, not just to the playoffs, but to the World Series and back to the playoffs and winning divisions and going toe-to-toe with the Giants and the Dodgers, these sort of powerhouse historic franchises and beating them head-to-head a lot. So everybody knew his track record, but that was kind of following him a little bit. I think it was part of the reason why Padres' ownership, you know, kind of decided that it was time to move on was, yeah, he's kind of stuck in his ways. An old boat, he's stubborn, and we need to change our franchise. And, and, and when you look at those first years of the Giants and the joy of 2009 and 10. And, and even seven and eight, when, when Tim Lincecum first arrived on the scene, when Matt Cain was establishing himself, the theme to me in a lot of ways is Bochi helping those young Giants players become who they became. And, you know, you could go right on down the line. And I, I just thought he had the perfect touch of giving respect to the, to the anchors, to the, you know, the, the 
veteran guys who would come in and sort of lead the way, the Benji Molinas of the world and, you know, those kind of players in those early years when the Giants, you know, Omar Vizquel, when the Giants weren't winning a ton of games those first couple of years, but he was kind of establishing a culture, but then also having the guts to hand the reins over to Posey and Pablo and Lincecum and let those young talents lead the way. And they, he just ended up being the perfect guy for that. And I think we knew that right away. We, you know, you can tell with Bo, Bochi and no matter who you talk to, who he's come across in his life, the theme always is he's just a great person. And so it's almost like no matter what job you do, if you're that good of a person and people respect you that much just for who you are, you're going to be successful. And we knew that right from the first day in spring training that I walked in his office to introduce myself. I, I can remember coming away thinking, God, that's just a good guy. It's going to be fun to be around. And gosh, was that ever the case over the next 13 years? Yeah, no doubt. And, and of course, at that time also, what immediately starts to really develop is just a next-level starting pitching rotation, unlike anything that we see in, in baseball today. And that, of course, led to, I think, a lot of cool moments for you, one of them that stands out off the top, 2009, the, uh, the Jonathan Sanchez no-hitter. What, what do you remember from that, that night and that call? Yes, well, I remember, you know, the way the Giants – fans and like take you know Dwayne and Mike talk about 1980 maybe 86 would be the best year to use as that example um, as like the transition year from some dark times to a much much different franchise and 1986 you know the Giants didn't go to the playoffs but they set the stage for all the winning that came after that and I look at 2009 as that same year where they didn't end up going to the playoffs, but they had a surprisingly great and fun year, and so many cool things happened that season. The emergence of, you know, Lincecum was already dominant, and, but, you know, he took another step forward, and Kane was great, and Pablo came up and had this terrific year. Pablo established himself as a really, really outstanding young hitter. But the Jonathan Sanchez moment, more than any other when you look back on 2009, more, more than any other single moment, uh, was to me the night that the ballpark came back to life. You know, mm. the ballpark for a couple of years, Giants fans were beaten down a little bit. And, they, you know, they enjoyed the Bond stuff. But the fact that the Giants weren't winning after all the winning in the early years of the park, just, you know, 2000, 2002, 2003, the Giants were so good and every game felt like a huge game and so many playoff moments it was just a downer to to go into this four-year tailspin in a way to, even with the history that was going on and that night when Jonathan pitched that no hitter was the night where I felt like the ballpark got back to what we had seen and I, I just I, I think that was such an important night in the history of the Giants because of that feeling and it gave everybody on that team a feeling that big things are happening. Because Jonathan, Jonathan was not a superstar by any means, but it was it was an indication to me of a guy who was kind of being pulled along by all the other good stuff that was happening around him. And that happened a lot over the next few years of players elevating from their maybe God-given talent level to something higher based on a collective. And I think we saw it that night. When, when Jonathan did that. 
Yeah, and and what a uh, what a marker of things to come. It absolutely was. I, I I'd love to jump into to to twenty ten with you and 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 what did you notice right away or was it just a continuation of what you were just talking about was there something in 2010 that that you could put your finger on at a certain point in the season you know i actually did you know i think right away we didn't notice it in fact right away i think there was something a little off about 2010 um the giants were playing okay but there were real expectations for the first time in a while based on what happened in 09 and the Giants were not playing as well as they thought they would. In fact, it was the Padres who were playing much better and looked to be the, the clear favorite in the division. And, you know, Buster Posey comes up in May. We'd seen him just briefly the last fall, just briefly. But he hardly played, and he was shot from a long minor league season. We didn't get a glimpse of the talent level. He comes up and makes his major league debut and has, you know, what, like three hits, five runs batted in. First at bat, he's ripping line drives, and <laughs> you know he was the biggest prospect. Lincecum was huge too, but Buster Posey was immediately like the future of the Giants franchise when they drafted him. There's so much anticipation, and that's May, and he comes up. But but the Giants have Benji Molina still, and it's this awkward, weird balancing act of trying to get Buster at bats at first base, but they had Aubrey Huff there who was having a good year. So there weren't a ton of at-bats there. And Benji was still a good player. And how do we do this? And Buster wasn't playing every day. And the team was kind of sputtering along. I thought underachieving. And I'll never forget, in July of that year, we were in Colorado. It was right around the 4th of July, I think. I'd have to go back and look at the schedule. And the Giants go to Coors Field. And they blow a couple games there really, really in bad fashion. Like, God how do we lose those games? And we're driving to the airport and we find out, maybe we found out before the bus ride that Benji had been traded to Texas. Mm-hmm. And it was a very bold, you know, it's, it's an underrated move looking back on it, but it was a bold move. I mean, Tim Lincecum wasn't happy. Tim loved pitching to Benji. And, but it was basically a sign of, look, we have to, we have to clear the bats for a guy who is a special talent, and we just we just have to do this. And it hurt a lot of people in that clubhouse. And it felt like a gut punch in a way, as opposed to an anointing of a future superstar and Hall of Famer. If, if people were sad, Benji was so popular. And we're driving to the airport and there's this storm cloud. And it was like, are we going to be able to take off? It was like one of those Rocky Mountain thunderstorms. And the Giants had lost these games. Everybody was so down. And we fly to Milwaukee. And Buster has the series of his life. Yeah. I mean, if you go back yeah. and look at how well he played those next four days, it was insane. And it was like Posey was freed up to be himself, and the team realized, oh, my God. You know, they all knew that he was super talented, but it was that week or weekend or whatever it was where it was like, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole new deal. And Posey, <laughs> yeah. you know, Posey ended up, Posey ended up being like the player of the month in July in the National League and and, and one rookie of the year and the franchise has never been the same and I but I I think back to that week where the, the chance were like 500 and sputtering along and we got too much talent and we got all these good pitchers and players and why aren't we playing better to in one week it changed and that's not to say that Benji was the problem he wasn't but there was something about the boldness of making that move and handing the keys to the car to this young guy 
that got it all going. And to me, when I think of 2010, that's kind of what I think of. Yeah, I mean, man, did it work. Obviously, uh, you, you know, you get into August and September and the, the Padres sputter and, and, uh, and they win the division uh, on into uh, the World Series. I know you were really under the weather going into game five. Take us through that day before the game actually got started. Yeah, I was so sick in Texas. We were staying at a really nice hotel, and it was beautiful fall weather there. And, you know, everybody else was out at the pool and ordering drinks. And I was just to hold up in the room thinking, God, what a time to get sick like this. And, you know, it turns out, you know, I think a lot of people, it happens to a lot of people in baseball. The postseason goes on for so long, and you're on so many flights, and there's so many strange, you know, you, you don't know, are we packing for – there's just a lot of uncertainty, and I think it takes a physical toll on everybody. And we were at the end of the rope there. and But, I, you know, I didn't want to miss games. I, it's the World Series, so I wasn't going to miss games. I was just going to do whatever I could to be there. And uh, I told myself, look, I'm going to call the, the, the whatever innings I was doing, third, fourth, and seventh innings of that game with Dwayne and Mike. And if there's a really big moment, it's not going to be the final out. But if there's a really big moment, I'm just going to play it cool and play it easy. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pump it up as much as I can, but I'm just not going to – I know I can't do it. I'm just not capable of doing it. I'm, my voice isn't right, and I'm sick. And so, so here we go to that seventh inning. And, you know, Edgar Renteria – he, he ended up being the World Series MVP, and he's got a special place in Giants history. He was a free agent bust, basically. You know, the Giants were counting on him to be a big part of who they were, and he just wasn't playing well in any way until those playoffs. And it's like, you know, he always had that reputation of being a big game guy, uh, and it turned out to be absolutely true with the Giants in 2010, and he had a good playoff. But this, he was not the guy I had circled to be the play, and, and any of us had circled to be the playoff hero against, right. you know, pitching staff for Texas that had been so powerful in the playoffs up till then. And, you know, there was something about the moment, whether it took me by surprise in a way, or I just couldn't, I, you know, and I, I probably, you know, did what every other Giants fan did watching and listening across the world. You know, it just was like, oh, my God, what did he just <laughs> Edgar Renteria, he's the guy who's going to break this curse of, you know, the Giants hadn't won a World Series with in San Francisco with Willie Mays and Juan Marichal and Willie McCovey and Will Clark and Barry Bonds and Edgar Renteria is going to be the guy. And so all my plans just went out the window and my voice blew out. And, uh, you know, I was at the time I was, embarrassed probably is too strong of a word, but I was like, oh, my God, that's the call everybody's going to hear forever and ever of maybe the biggest home run in San Francisco Giants history. 2-0 the count. Lee pitches. Renteria hits a high drive. Deep left center field. David Murphy going back. He's on the warning track. It is gone! Edgar Renteria has hit a three-run homer against Cliff Lee. And the Giants lead here in the World Series three to nothing. And as the years have gone by, as it turns out, so many people, yeah, I'm sure there are people who laugh at it or chuckle at the fact that my voice kind of blew out in the moment, but 
so many people to this day still come up and talk to me about that call and how much they loved it and how much they felt like it represented the unleashing of all the frustration of all the years. And it was exactly what they were thinking at the moment. And so who knows, maybe it happened for a reason or turned out that way for a reason, but uh, I'm not, I'm not sheepish about it anymore. Maybe I was at one point, but maybe in a weird way, it sort of fits what was happening with that team and that, that whole playoff run. Well, count me among those who, uh, who believe that as well, like the voice crack, it captured the surprise that it was in Garenteria, the surprise that that ball wasn't off the wall, that it was actually over the fence. And, and yes, the emotion of, oh, my gosh, this, this might be the year. So I know you didn't mean it, but it, but it, absolutely, it absolutely captures that. Yeah, I think in some weird way it ended up being kind of oddly perfect for that team of yep. misfits and cast-offs and weirdos and – young guys and it was a it was a strange moment in my career but when i look back on it uh when i look back on it i smile uh you know you said in that call also the giants are nine outs away and i and i believe it crossed my mind i wonder if it crossed yours or any of your broadcast partners you know the giants had been nine outs away (laughs) eight years earlier as well and, and so when, when you said that, or, or maybe you, I don't think you thought that, you know, you were tying 2002 to 2010, but, but when you said it, was there any looking back on that? Like, you know, wow, I mean, they've, they've been nine outs away before. I don't, I don't think at the moment that I, that I was tying it together that explicitly, but I think hanging over all of that run was that memory for all of us. And so nobody was taking anything for right. granted until the final out and you know that's where god love brian wilson uh, as many heart attacks as he gave us all he got that final out and 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 i do think that was for everybody in that franchise you know there have been a lot of turnover but there'd also been a lot of folks in the clubhouse on the coaching staff in the front office in the broadcast booth who were who lived that pain of 2002 and for so many people that was hanging over every game of those playoffs and that's you know the release at the end of 2010 was in part because of that and that awful feeling eight years prior and so i don't know if it was explicit but we were all thinking about this thing ain't over right right. uh after the giants are world series champs uh if in any way how does that change your job uh well it made it better you know when we it, it all of a sudden Giants are a great historic franchise with tons of great fans and huge, huge slice of the emotional, uh, the emotion of the Bay Area, Northern California, the heartbeat of this place that we all love so much. But it changed after 2010 and it just became, you know, Giants baseball became the, the place to be. And that ballpark was which always had been special, ratcheted up a notch. And kids were playing, you know, little leagues were full and waiting lists and people were camping out to, to have their kids play baseball in the city. And uh, we were getting invited to the Supreme Court by Supreme Court justices who wanted to talk to the team. And when we'd go to D.C. and, uh, you know, the White House visits and all of that. And so just so many cool things came out of that. Uh, being associated with the Giants became so much cooler after that, and it didn't slow down for a bunch of years. It probably still hasn't slowed down 
in a lot of ways. So, I, you know, my personal life didn't change all that much. It just became more fun. The 2012 Matt Cain perfect game. Um, I know, you know, for instance, the team was uh, was a little short that night. I know Kruk was was not there. What, what do you remember about that entire night and, and again, the ending of it where you get the final call? Yeah, the, the, uh, the, it was such a – it was also a strange day. Matt's talked about this before, and I know Brian Sabian's talked about it before because the U.S. Open was starting the next day in San Francisco at the Olympic Club, the golf tournament. And uh, so it was, like, it was like U.S. Open night at the park, and I was down in the clubhouse before the game with Dustin Johnson and a few other players who were talking to Willie Mays about golf and – the u.s open and how the olympic club was going to play and and matt did that that uh thing at the beginning of, of the night where before first pitch and it was a couple hours i guess before first pitch it was kind of his batting practice was winding up he had to ask special permission and this isn't a new story but he had to ask special permission of sabian hey i know i'm the starting pitcher but they want me to have a long drive contest with dustin johnson from home plate can i do it on the night that i'm pitching and I think Sage reluctantly said, yeah, sure, you can. So here comes the starting pitcher for that night's game out to home plate with a tailor-made driver to whale one into <laughs> McCovey Cove. Uh, and, I mean, those guys literally did that. And it was such a funny, weird start to the day because of that. Uh, and so I think that is one reason why, in my mind, it took a bunch of innings. I mean, we knew Matt had great stuff, Uh but it took a while to lock in on the fact that it could be a special night because it did start off as a night that wasn't normal by baseball standards. It was almost like it wasn't a joke, but it was like, yeah, it's golf night. We're hitting golf balls into the bay before the game, and it's almost like a minor league promotion or something like that. And But as the game went on, it was clear. And, you know, as much fun as it was to call the final out of a perfect game, uh, which still is the only instance of that in the history of the Giants, it was the, the Gregor Blanco catch is will forever be one of my favorite moments as a broadcaster. And not just because of what an amazing play it was and getting to call the play by play for that play. But I think my call was something like, you know, I'm sure it's archived somewhere. We go back and listen to it, but you know, he gets, he peels himself off the outfield grass. Uh, and <laughs> I say, you know, I said something like, that's the kind of moment where you start to think it's going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, it turned out that it did. You know, sometimes you say something like that, although I try not to say something like that unless I really mean it. But it turned out that's exactly true. That, uh, that, and and I, that's how I was feeling. And it just felt like uh, it felt like the perfect call for the moment of, cause I think that's what everybody in the ballpark was thinking. Well, if he made that catch, this guy's going to do it tonight. And from that catch on, you know, the whole place was jumping already, you know, in the fifth and sixth innings that, that anticipation starts to build when he made that catch from that moment on till the end of the game, it was a madhouse and people were running around. I remember ESPN people telling me years later that they were driving around the city, like having dinner because they were there to cover the golf. Like a bunch of the top people at ESPN were in town. (laughs) And, like, maybe put the rate game on on the radio in the cab going back to the hotel and told the cab driver, no, there's a perfect – got to get down to the ballpark and, like, race him to come in and try to see, could, would somebody let him in? Could they get in with a press pass? Uh, 
<laughs> there are just there are so many stories around town because there were so many people there for a different event that I've heard from years later about about being in the city that night. Yeah, it was a slow build. It was a it was one of those nights that just is like you started to get a sense of what was happening, and it felt like maybe another couple hours before it actually did. It was, uh, yeah, it was one one for the books for sure. And then a few months later. You guys are right back in the World Series again, and, and and I would love to hear how this comes together. You know, you are not on the call for the ending of 2010, so the man you listened to growing up hands you the baton for the ninth inning of Game 4 in 2012. What did that mean to you? Well, and it was the 10th inning, right? So it was right. – uh, So good point, was, yes. And and that's how – that's really how it happened. So we had this matrix. Now, I will say this. I love that we do it. But it is complicated in the playoffs because most teams kick their TV guys to the curb, uh, which is so wrong in a lot of ways. But, you know, like most teams, the local broadcast goes off the air television wise in the playoffs and the TV announcers have nothing to do with the game calls. And it's like, man, these guys are huge parts of the fans experience all year and then nothing. So it's never felt right to us. And we've never done it that way. And we've always incorporated Dwayne and Mike in the playoff radio broadcast because that's the only place that they can go and it makes for a crowded booth and you know sometimes literally a crowded booth when you (laughs) have four people plus a a producer engineer in a small radio booth it can be awkward just to pull it off logistically but but figuratively as well so we have this matrix planned out ahead of time like okay john's doing things one and two and dwayne's doing the third and i'm doing the fourth and john comes back for the fifth and dwayne comes back for the sixth and you know it's like a, you need like a code breaker to, to figure out who's doing what and it's, it's complicated but uh, always through all these years the 10th inning has been my inning for whatever reason okay dave doesn't get to do as much in the regular game maybe he would ordinarily so the 10th inning is Dave. So we go to the 10th in Detroit and back to the play-by-play. Here's Dave Fleming. And I, I guess in the back of my mind, I thought, well, it's extra innings of a, a potential clinching game. But it was cold, and the game had kind of stalemated in a way. It had been a really exciting game, but uh, it wasn't like, oh, my God, here comes. And, it, you know, I think it was, was it Ryan Terrio leading off the inning yeah. uh, or, or came up with one out? So it wasn't like, oh, here comes Posey and right. Pablo, and they're gonna they're doing it right here, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, Terrio gets on base, and Scudero, little perfect Marco Scudero moment, knocks him in, and the Giants get a run on the board, and they're three outs away from winning a World Series. And so we go to commercial break. The Giants have the lead. And I put the headset down, and I lean across the booth. I mean, literally, you can picture I'm on the far left if you're behind us facing the field in Detroit. Then Dwayne's next to me, and Mike's next to him, and John's next to him. We're all – it's the biggest booth in the game maybe, so it's the perfect booth for the four of us. We're all there lined up together. And I kind of lean over the other two guys to John, and I say – because John didn't get a chance to call – in 2010 he was working the network uh, broadcast on radio right. so he didn't do the giants call in 2010 and i lean over to john thinking well he didn't get to do it last time he's the voice of the team and i say something to john along the lines of look john you would you like to do the bottom of the ninth uh you know this is history you you should maybe you should be doing this call and john t- didn't even miss a beat just looked at me he goes no it's your inning what are you talking about 
You're, mm-hmm. it's, this is your inning. You do it. You called the run. We, we do it. That's not how we do it. And, uh, okay. So issue resolved. And I do, you know, maybe in the moment I didn't think as much about it, but looking back on it, it was a great gesture from him. Cause I, I think in the history of our business, there are probably a lot of guys who would have said, Oh, you're right. Yeah, I'll do yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Gee, I hadn't thought of that. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. and you know, maybe there's some guys who would have volunteered it themselves, but, uh, yeah, right. so it, it, it took a lot for, for him to do that. And I'll, I'll never forget it. Cause I got to, to call Romo striking out Miguel Cabrera and the Giants winning the World Series. And in the history of the game, there just aren't that many broadcasters who've called the final out of a World Series, and I'm on the list. Two and two the count. Romo shakes off Posey. Now has the one he likes. Romo's 2-2 pitch on the way. Cabrera takes strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. And the celebration begins as the Giants mob the mound. Cabrera strikes out looking to end it. And not only have the Giants won the World Series, they have swept the Tigers in four games in dominant fashion. And it's the second World Series title for the Giants in the last three seasons. No doubt. And John gets his chance a couple years later with the pop-up to Pablo in Kansas City. Does the does the does that moment in 2012, you know, you were mentioning the Blanco catch, for instance, in Matt Kane's perfect game. Does the 2012 game four call is, does that stand out above the others, or is it just kind of on the list? Yeah, probably so. It probably does. I mean, I think my kids remember it too. Uh they were old enough to be listening and paying more attention even than they were in 2010 so they were really excited so that kind of adds to the feeling of of how important it was to all of us yeah that i mean that probably it's hard to argue even if it it was a you know it wasn't a diving catch or a home run robbery but it's the final out of a world series win and at that point maybe the greatest hitter in the game at the plate you know that also made it uh even more dramatic it's miguel cabrera who was just an unbelievable force at that time and striking out for the final out of the world series where one swing of the bat, a one run game could have tied it. Uh, you know, that was a lot of drama. So yeah, I think it probably does. Um, you know, I mentioned that 2014 run also where you did have another set of great calls. If you dive through the, the playoff run, I know you had Crawford's wild card grand slam, uh, Morse's game-winning hit in Game 7, which no one would have known at the time was a, a game-winning hit because it was so early in the game. But I just wonder at this point, as you're feeling yet another run, can you, can you guys believe that this is happening? I mean, at that point, you're probably all starting to deal with the word dynasty if, if they win that Game 7. So what, what were your thoughts on that run? Yeah, that's, you know, and that's one where the access to Bochi helped my peace of mind because, you know, there's the famous story about after game five, Bumgarner pitches the shutout and he runs into Ned Ghost in the hallway. Uh, and we're going back to Kansas City Giants, one win from winning the thing. And Ned Yost makes some snide comment like, you know, great, great job. Oh, gosh, that was awesome. Thank God I don't have to see you again. And Bumgarner yeah. kind of chuckled to himself, and it's like you're going <laughs> to see me again. <laughs> and you know that, and and so the reason I bring up Bochi is because before the game, he had told us kind of what his plan was, which you know a lot of managers won't do that. Bochi's always trusted us, so we had in the back of our mind it wasn't just that Bumgarner was going to pitch an inning 
or get, you know, come in to get Eric Hosmer, or Mike Moustakas. It was, you know, we're, we got a quick hook early. We're going to Affelt at the first sign of trouble, which turned out to be the second inning. And then we're giving it to the big guy and we're giving it to him for as long as he can go. And so it made me feel in a weird way, uh, you know, so much more relaxed, not that the outcome was determined, but, you know, we kind of knew what the plan was. There was a plan and it sounded like a good plan to me because there was chaos early in that game. You go back and watch. Oh yeah. Seven and, and, (laughs) Yeah. Tim Hudson starts to, you know, the sinker starts to bounce in front of the plate and it's going everywhere. And the Giants took that lead early and the Royals came back so quickly and answered that I felt not good at that point. Like, gosh, you know, just enjoy a lead for an inning, like get a few outs uh, playing from ahead. And it was like, it just, it disappeared so fast. And that's why when you, you mentioned that Michael Morse hit, not that I knew Bumgarner was coming in a few outs later, but, you know, we all had a sense, just get the lead. And then and we think that between Casilla and Lopez and Bumgarner, like however it plays out, even if Bum doesn't have his best stuff, like get a lead. And we all felt really good about it. And that's why, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a hit in a world series. It puts a team ahead in a game seven. I was really excited, but if you go back and listen to it, it did almost sound like it was a bigger hit than a fourth yeah. inning hit. Cause I just felt like, gosh, Maybe that's it. They got it back. Now maybe they can get the ball to, to bum and go. And turns out that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, you were on to something for sure. Um, gosh, Dave, I mean, you're, uh, you're closing in here on 20 years under your belt already as a, as a Giants broadcaster. I wonder how that compares to what you were thinking when you first got the job. Yeah, it's impossible to ever imagine that. Uh, I think the one thing about baseball broadcasting, uh, as opposed to any other part of this world that we're in, is you associate broadcasters with teams and with longevity. And whether it's Vin or Ernie Harwell or Jack Buck or whomever, you can pick a lot of examples. Uh, You know, all the Giants broadcasters over the years, there are many examples of that. It's the one sport where that association is so strong. And so, you know, maybe in the back of my mind, when I first came here, I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be cool to be one of those guys where you just were with a team and you got to stay with the team. And, but 20 years, I was, I was hardly 20 years old, (laughs) not, not literally, but I mean, like 20 years that I couldn't possibly have dreamed of what 20 years old, 20 years from then would look like. Uh, and it's just, you know, there's, I think I've said it to you before when we, you and I have talked, uh, just in different conversations, I, I get to do all this other stuff, network sports and college football games and MLB games and playoff games for other, you know, other, other MLB playoff games and big events on different stages, but nowhere is, is it even comparable the feedback and interaction you get with the people who are watching or listening as opposed to local baseball. So no matter what I can do a game on the biggest stage, a new year's bowl game with top 10 teams and uh, you know, an audience of 10 million people watching on TV, but I walk out of there and the game's over and somebody says, good job. And, you know, maybe I get a few text messages from some people around the country. And that's that when you do local baseball, Every day that I'm in this city, 
I walk around and people just want to talk about the Giants and the game that just happened or a game that happened a long time ago. And there, there's just no comparison to the feedback and the interaction you get. And it makes it so rewarding. It's so much fun. And that's, you know, that's to me where the years and the history that builds up comes into play. Where twenty, I have 20 years of memories with all these people who live around us and I interact with every day. And that's kind of the language that we speak. And, uh, you know, so I feel really, really lucky about that. I could have never dreamed about it. But, you know, now that I'm here, I'm kind of dreaming about maybe 20 more. Like, why not? Mm-hmm. I feel well, pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I was. Gonna, that's a pretty comforting answer that you just gave, I think, for Giants fans because I know that that is their hope, that, that you're quarterbacking this thing and, and the next generation of, of baseball in San Francisco. So how would you describe what's in your mind's eye for the future? Yeah, John had the left line. I went to Cooperstown when John was inducted into the Hall of Fame. The Giants gave me the weekend off, which was super nice because it presented a lot of issues for the broadcast but they you know i said i think i should be there for john he's going into the hall of fame and uh i've done more games with him than any partner he's ever had which also sounds funny to say but it's true uh and john uh had the laugh line he thanked me for being there just a brief mention which was really he didn't have to do uh but he said something like i can't wait to be sitting on my you know back porch uh in whatever year he named and listening to Dave and Tim Lincecum on the call. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a funny line, uh, but it, it, it makes me laugh to this day thinking, yeah, I wonder who, you know, who might be, I'd be sitting beside us. I'm the old crusty guy who's been around for a long time and, and we're breaking in some new voices for the Giants. Who knows what it'll look like uh, 20 years from now, but it is a, it's a cool feeling to even think about. I mean, you have an opportunity actually to be, uh, one of those guys that I don't think we think are going to happen anymore. But you know how when Vin Scully or someone like that gets toward the end of their career and they're like, he's been the Dodgers' voice for 65 years. And you're like, how is that even possible? How is that even possible? And the business has changed so much. But has that ever crossed your mind because of what age you were when you started like that? That, that could happen. Yeah, no, I think Vin was 21 when he started. So I right. I don't think anybody's going to be wanting to listen to me when I'm 94 or whatever it would take to get to, <laughs> you know, get to, get to that milestone. But uh, even, but you're right, even something like 50 years, like imagine working for the same company for 50 years, let alone, yeah. you know, a job like this with the, with the sort of the weight and the privilege and the, the experience of doing what I get to do. But, you know, just being a, just working for, you know, the, the water company for 50 years is an incredible accomplishment, <laughs> let alone something like that. So that that's a hard one to sort of envision. But, uh, you know, I do think that we're all in this together. And so that's where it's just a different relationship where the fans use me as a conduit to something that they really, really love. And so I become a part of that, you know, not that I I like to think I'm good at what I do, but even independent of how good or not good I am, I'm just there every day with something that people care so deeply about. And so I'm connected to it. And, uh, you know, that's a really cool thing. Uh, Dave, so was this conversation. My gosh, what a ton of fun. That was, uh, that was heartwarming and, and just, uh, just awesome. I thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to hang out. 
What a cool uh, walk down memory lane for me. I hope people are interested in I mean, that was a lot of personal history for me. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's as interesting for anybody to, to listen to, but uh, gosh, uh, let's make it another 20 years or more. How about it? Uh, that, that sounds good to me. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Mark, for doing it. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to Inside Giant Moments, presented by T-Mobile. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. For more exclusive conversations, subscribe to the Inside Giant Moments podcast, presented by T-Mobile, now. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.